So we talked about sin and brokenness and the horrors and the tragedies of it, and it should. It should horrify us. But we don't get left there, which is great. And so we're starting a new series today. We don't have a, a passage to really read. And so instead, as we transition from worship through communion, through worship through music, through worship through scripture, I just want to read from Hebrews 10 and then pray before the message. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for confidence. Thank you for the confidence to sing loudly and freely. Thank you for the confidence to cheer and rejoice and celebrate together, to encourage one another. Thank you that you have washed us clean. Thank you that you have opened our minds to understand and our ears to listen, God. And, and so may you do that now. God, may we submit to your word. May we enjoy your word. May we appreciate your word. May we take great delight in knowing it and knowing you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're starting a new series, starting on Exodus. We'll get to the why I personally felt this conviction and burden at the very end. Um, but if you've noticed, and maybe if you haven't noticed, and I'm pointing this out, and maybe you're like, who cares? But if you've noticed, with sermon series, we go from New Testament to Old Testament, to New Testament to Old Testament, to New Testament to Old Testament. Because I've seen a, a couple different studies and reports on how much of Scripture is never preached about or taught taught on. Like how many churches just stay in the same five or six books or topics over and over again. And that's really tragic to me because there is such rich depths to all of scripture. And so personally, I hope I never get to preach through the whole Bible. I really hope I don't because Jesus has come back. That'd be great if Exodus was the last thing I ever preached through. But if Jesus doesn't come back, I'm personally committed to preaching through as much of the Bible as I can before I die or he returns. And so we were just in the New Testament. Now we're going to jump into the Old Testament. We're going to jump into Exodus, one of the history books, one of the parts of the Pentateuch or the Torah. And to understand Exodus, so this week is really going to be an introduction, an introduction to the book. Maybe you're super familiar with it. That's great. Maybe you know that the book Exodus exists, and that's okay. Maybe you've never even heard of the word Exodus, and this is going to be all new. Wherever it is, awesome. We're going to set the table. We're going to prepare for the feast that is Exodus. And so in order to do so, we need to begin with by understanding the Torah or the Pentateuch. Uh, the Pentateuch meant five Torah means law, instruction, and so you have a Hebrew word, a Greek word, and they're both referring to the first five books of the Bible. And why is this important? Why is understanding the whole of the Torah important to understanding Exodus? Well, because the Torah is not just the introduction to the Bible. If you're starting a movie, you're starting a two-hour movie, how far in do you begin? At second zero, right? Like, even if it's a movie I've seen over and over again, Home Alone, 
Home Alone, which I could probably reenact for you right now without any help. And I'm still going to start at the very beginning because that's where the story starts. So, but not only, is, not only is the Torah important for that because the story starts there, but the Torah, these first five books, the Pentateuch, they're beautiful, they're wonderful because they also set the tone for all of Scripture. They introduce the truths and lessons that we see laid out throughout all of Scripture. And so, yes, it begins things, but it also establishes things. For a world back then that struggled with atheism, polytheism, deism, for a world today that struggles with atheism, polytheism, deism, nothing's new under the sun, the Torah, these first five books, establish one sovereign personal God. And then these books also establish his promises and his plan, that this is not an uninvolved God, this is a personal God with plans, with intentions. They introduce the problem of sin, the fall of sin. They introduce his solution. They introduce redemption, restoration. These first five books establish his character. They establish his nature. They establish his love for his people, his mercy, his justice. They also establish his standards. And so more than just a, you know, factual introduction, it is also a thematic introduction to all of Scripture. Hey, this is what you're going to see throughout the rest of this one cohesive work written by God through the pens of his human transcribers. It's really fascinating. And the whole theme of Scripture, the whole arc of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, can be roughly broken into one of four categories. So this is even a great study tip. If you came to our summer Bible study series on studying Scripture, uh, basic, basic principles of hermeneutics, that big fancy word for studying the Bible, one of the principles we looked at is understanding how any one passage fits into the overall biblical narrative which can, can be broken into four main categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You see that continue to pop up throughout the rest of Scripture. The great thing about these first five books is you see those themes paralleled within the stories themselves of the Pentateuch and of the Torah. We're going to look at that in just a second. And so these first five books, not only do they kick it off, but they also tell us where things are going and they help us understand where things are going. And so to understand the middle and understand the end, it helps to understand the start. And so to understand Exodus, which is the second one of these, you have to understand the whole of the five as a context. Because then you get to Exodus. So we're, we're not going to start with Genesis, which is number one, but you get to Exodus. And what's the background? How do we get to Exodus? If we're progressing through the narrative history of God's people, how do we get to Exodus chapter one, verse one? If you received the handout, and I didn't think to grab a copy when you came in this morning, we put all of this information in a little handout that you can slide right into your Bible. We did the same thing with Psalms, with 2 Corinthians. We're going to be doing those with the sermon series. So if you grabbed it, great. Try not to read ahead. We'll cover everything that's on there. If you already read ahead, I'm going to sit down and you can come do this. So how do we get to the start of Exodus? Well, if you go back to Genesis and you start with Genesis 37 and then chapters 39 to 50, we see the story of Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed by his family, winds up in Egypt, gets betrayed by people in Egypt, winds up in jail, gets betrayed by people in jail, winds up in jail even longer. Not a happy story, it seems. But then you see how God is working through that. And at the end of Joseph's story, if you come to Genesis 45 and 46, you see at the end of Joseph's story, God has redeemed this broken situation and used Joseph's place of prominence in the Egyptian government to provide for his whole family, the core of the Israelite people, in a time of famine that was killing off a huge chunk of the world. 
And so even in Joseph's story, we see the parallel biblical narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God makes something good. God uses Joseph's position. He makes something good and he provides a way to rescue his people from famine, fall, sin. What breaks it? The slavery that the Israelites wind up in. So at the end of Joseph's life in 45, you see him talking to his brothers and he says, hey, no, God put me here. Bring all the rest of the people. Bring everyone here. Bring them to Egypt. I can provide for you. I can take care of you. And then you get to Exodus 1, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So you see God establishing something good and then you see those people that established people of Israel be taken slaves, be put into slavery by the king of Egypt, by the Pharaoh. And so you see the fall, you see the brokenness. And then as we progress through Exodus, we're going to get to the Exodus when God brings his people out of Egypt. We're going to bring, or we're going to look at redemption. God redeeming a broken situation. God salvaging, saving, transforming a broken situation. You see a promise of restoration. He's not just bringing them out of Egypt and saying, okay, figure it out on your own now. He's bringing them out of Egypt and he's promising something ahead of them. So like I said just a moment ago, even within the stories of the Pentateuch, we see this biblical narrative paralleled, which makes studying these books so, so fascinating because we see that God has written the DNA of his plan into every instance of human history. And he is always working. He is always moving. Consider even these promises, these commands, this mandate given. Genesis 1, the first chapter of the first book in Genesis 1, the creation account. God makes Adam and Eve, and what does he say to them? In Genesis 1, 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then you jump to Exodus 1, 7, and what do we see that we just read? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So within these books, not only are we seeing the whole of the biblical narrative advance, we're also seeing God fulfill his promises in wonderful ways, unexpected ways, always sovereign, always at work, always moving for his glory. It's really incredible to understand where things began and then how we get to the start of Exodus. And so then we come to the book of Exodus itself. In Exodus, you can divide into two halves, roughly. Not like literally mathematically, but roughly two halves to the story. And both of them have to do with the same thing. Both of them have to do with the idea of covenant. Covenant, this big biblical word for promise, for agreement. For we enter into covenant with one another. Devin just entered into covenant with you all. He entered into covenant with his fellow elders. He agreed, he said, hey, I will uphold this standard. I will lead these people. And in return... This is what we expect. This is what we expect of him. But then he also says, hey, I have expectations. So Devin just entered into a covenant to lead and for us to lead with him and to lead him and to hold him accountable. We enter into covenant with one another. It's what we call church membership where we say, hey, I'm making a commitment to this body. I commit myself to this body in this way, to these things, to these standards, to meet these things. Anytime I'm talking to new members, where are our most recent new members? Mostly over here. You guys remember this. Anytime I talk to new members, I say, hey, here are our expectations of you, not invitations. We do not invite members to things. We say, we expect you to do things. 
And new members all have a very easy time agreeing to the first couple of things. We expect you to serve. Yep, I agree to it. We expect you to give. Yep, I agree to it. We expect you to fellowship, to let these people into your life. Yep, I agree to all of it. And then I flip it around and I say, and we expect you to let us serve you. We expect you to tell us when you need help so that we can help. That's a lot harder for us to agree to. Because now it's like, oh, I need to admit I need help. But that's the point of a covenant. The point of a covenant is two bodies entering into agreement with one another. In Exodus, you can look at and you can see this theme of covenant throughout all of it. The first half is fulfilled covenant. The first half is fulfilled promises. And so again, we're going to go back to Genesis to understand these fulfilled promises. So the first half, Abraham's covenant is going to play a huge part in it. A key figure from Genesis. And in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, God says to Abraham, he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises this incredible huge lineage to Abraham. In Genesis 15, 13 to 14, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God has promised Abraham this nation, like the nations will come from you, and he says, but those people, they're going to be in a land that's not their own. And more than that, they're going to be servants, they're going to be slaves in that land. This is not going to be a vacation for them. It's going to go on for 400 years. This is not a, oh, well, if I can just get to the end of the week, I'll be fine. This is a generation after generation affliction that God has said, hey, this is going to happen to your people. He says they will be afflicted for 400 years, but then God promises, he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And then in Genesis 17, starting in verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See what God called Abram to in the very first part of it? Very quickly, he said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Respond to my holiness, submit to my holiness. Be sanctified. And so God has promised Abram, now Abraham, these things. And then in the first half of Exodus, we see these things fulfilled. We see that Abram's lineage, his descendants have become a mighty nation, a great nation, a multitude. We see that they are afflicted, that they are sojourners in a land that is not their own. They are enslaved there. It goes on for 400 years. And then they are rescued. They are brought out of this. They are brought out richly with blessings given to them by the people who enslaved them. And they are promised the land of Canaan. It's incredible to see the fulfillment of God's prophecies already, his promises already to Abram, to Abraham. And then you have the second half of the book. And if the first half of the book is dealing with God's covenant, specifically with Abraham, in the second half of the book, we see God establish his covenant with his people, with all of his people. Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. If you're familiar with Charlton Heston, or Charlton, 
Charles, Charles Heston? Ah, whatever, Heston. He did a movie on this. Very big deal. We see this in the second half. God's covenant with his people is revealed. It's confirmed. It's broken almost immediately. And then it's renewed. It's restored. So even in that, we see the biblical arc paralleled in a small way. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This book is, I'm so excited for us to dive into this and just take it bit by bit. It is such a rich tapestry. I, I am, I'm pumped. Like, I love this. And I realize this is a lot. Remember, we're just, we're setting the foundation. We're laying the groundwork. What's more than just the history of Exodus is there's beautiful, beautiful foreshadowing in this. If you've read through Exodus before and you're familiar with some of the history, you're familiar with some of the stories, you remember Kids Wing and you remember like the Red Sea and the plagues and things like that. Okay, great. But also more than that, I want you to look for, as we read through Exodus together, as we study Exodus together, I want you to realize how much foreshadowing God puts into Exodus. How much of Exodus, this history book of God's people, points to the New Testament, points to the Messiah, points to what is ahead for his people. Exodus 12, which is all about the Passover lamb, which we just celebrated through communion. Exodus 12 beautifully points to Jesus' arrival in John 1. You have Exodus 19, 5 and 6. That's the first place where you see God promise that his people will be a nation of priests, a royal priesthood. You see that then fulfilled, 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 1, 5 through 6. It's foreshadowed back in Exodus. Exodus 40, the end of Exodus all about the tabernacle. What do we see in John 1 when Jesus comes? It says Jesus dwelt with his people. Jesus tabernacled with his people. Exodus so wonderfully and incredibly points to what's ahead. It's wonderful. And even more than that, if you go into even more detail, if you dive into even deeper detail, it foreshadows, it points to Jesus's ministry and work in our lives subsequent to salvation. The people are in Egypt and they come out of Egypt. What does Hosea tell us will be true about the one day Messiah? That he will come out of Egypt. What do we see in Matthew? That Jesus sojourned to Egypt, a land that was not his own, and came out of Egypt. It foreshadows Jesus' early life. The Last Supper is a Passover meal instituted in Exodus. And at that Passover meal, Jesus refers to the new covenant in his blood in Luke twenty-two twenty. 20. He's almost echoing Moses' words in Exodus 24. It's wonderful. Jesus describes his death as an exodus that he would accomplish in Luke 9. And most of our English translations, it might have the word departure. He's talking about what's coming and he, he, he prophesies, he tells his disciples about his departure. He says, I will accomplish this. That Greek word, that original word that he uses is exodus. So Jesus says, hey, I will complete an exodus. Baptism and partaking in spiritual food and drink is foreshadowed by the crossing of the Red Sea. It's foreshadowed by participating in God's sustenance being provided for in the wilderness. If you read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4, talking about these foundational elements of truth for the new church, the early church, and it ties it all the way back to what God's people, the Israelites, experienced in Exodus. It's awesome to see. And then finally, in heaven, 
you go to Revelation 15, what do we know about heaven? That it will be a place of celebration, of rejoicing, of singing, of jubilation. Do you know what one of the songs that is being sung in heaven is? Well, go read Exodus 15 and you will. Moses' song that he writes back in Exodus 15 is sung in heaven in Revelation 15. It is so cool to see how all of Scripture ties together and how it builds and how it tells the one story of God redeeming his people. I, I love it. And so if we're looking to understand Exodus... Now let's talk about the practical understanding Exodus. If this is the background of Exodus, the foundation of Exodus, these are the details of Exodus, what is the general theme that we are going to be looking at that is going to pop up in so many messages? God is greater than fill in the blank. God is greater than. What do we see in Exodus 2 and in Exodus 7? God's power is greater than opposition. What do we see in Exodus 1, Exodus 4, Exodus 14? God's calling is greater than our weaknesses, our doubts, and our obstacles. What do we see in Exodus 2 and 3, chapters 14 to 17, or verses 14 to 17, chapter 6? God's faithfulness is greater than our circumstances. In Exodus 16 and 32, we see that God's mercy is greater than our sin. We see that God's justice is greater than our arrogance. Throughout Exodus, we will again and again see God is greater than. And I think that's something we all need to be reminded of with great regularity. God is greater than. The obstacle that's in front of us that's overwhelming, God is greater than that. Our self-doubt, our excuses for why I can't have an impact, I'm not the one who's meant to share the gospel, I'm not the one who can do this. No, God is greater than that. Our arrogance, our stubbornness, our refusal to yield, God is greater than that. Like, his justice is greater than our justice. His mercy is greater than our mercy, greater than our sin. Like, everything about God, everything about who God is, is greater than everything else the world has to offer, everything else that we bring. God is greater than, and Exodus reminds us of that on every single page. His holiness, his sanctifying work, his redemption and restoration of his people, his promises, they are all greater than everything else that we spend our time searching for. And so I've said this before, I truly sincerely mean this, and it's even become a joke. We've laughed about this before. I really want to preach through Acts. And God has never yet said, okay, you can preach through Acts. Because it's not about just, hey, what do I want to do? What do I want to talk about? It's, Lord, what do you have for us? Lord, what do you have for us? Where do we need to be? What do we need to be learning? How do we need to be growing? How do we need to be yielding? And so in prayer, as I was praying over, as we're wrapping up, as we're halfway through 2 Corinthians, as we're getting three quarters of the way through 2 Corinthians, I'm praying about, Lord, where are we going next? And time and time again, he brought me back to Exodus. And I didn't know why at first. I was like, okay, okay, well, help, you know, help me understand why now. Help me, not, not perfectly. I don't need to know perfectly, but just so I have an idea of where this is going, why. And he kept putting the same things on my heart over and over again. And so I want you to consider these things, these reasons. Maybe they'll resonate with you. Why do I feel so burdened for Exodus? Why do I believe God has placed it on my heart for what's next? Well, first and foremost, on a very logistical nature, we are strangers in a strange land awaiting our promised destination. This is a great country. It's not your home. Don't get too attached to it. 
is a great town. My wife and I living here, love living here. Not your home. Don't get too attached to it. I mean, on a very practical nature, we are all strangers in a strange land awaiting our eventual destination. So we should relate very well to people who are not where they belong, wanting to be where they belong. I think that speaks directly to our lives today. But then more than that, we're going to see in Exodus that God's people really struggle with forgetting what God has done. God's people really struggle with forgetting what God is doing And they struggle with allowing their circumstances to become overwhelming, to become terrifying, to become intimidating, to become paralyzing, to drive them to despair. God's people have struggled with this from the start. I believe the church still really struggles with this. I do. I'm sorry. I'm not talking specifically about us. I think we have that tendency. I think we have that temptation. I think we have that that pitfall. But I think the big church, I mean, do you know how many times... Like, and I've said this before, so this is something, if, if, if you've got a good memory, you'll remember me saying this before. Something I got so sick of in 2020 was how many articles, podcasts, books, lessons, conversations, well, if the church can just survive this year. God's church has never been called to just survive. God's church has been called to thrive, to fight, to stand their ground. And we got so overwhelmed by one year that we were like, oh goodness, I don't know how we're going to get through this. So I think God's people in Exodus struggled with forgetting what God has done and is doing because they were too focused on their circumstances. I think the church in 2024 struggles with that. And because of that, God's people in Exodus, they missed out on what God was doing because they were so focused backwards. Their eyes were in the wrong direction. Their perspective was on the wrong thing. Their focus was given to the wrong target. And so they missed what God was doing. I think the church struggles with that today. Don't raise your hands. How many of us have said, or at least thought, if we could only go back to, then everything would be okay. If we, could only, if we could only go back to this, then everything would be okay. We're so focused on looking back that we miss what God is doing now. God's people struggled with that in Exodus. What about the end of Exodus? Full disclosure, full confession. If you're doing a Bible reading plan and you're going through Exodus, there are some chapters in Exodus that turn into the ones that are hard to get through four straight chapters on what size the wood should be. Come on, I love reading. I love Bible information. Even I'm like, okay, I get it. Acacia wood, it's nice wood. Move on. Why are those chapters so important? Why are all those details on, okay, we moved on from acacia wood. Now we're going to take two chapters to talk about curtain rings. You think I'm kidding. Wait till we get to the end of Exodus. Why does this stuff matter? Why does this matter to the church today? Because I think we need a desperate, deeper understanding of how important sanctification is to the Lord. I think we desperately need a deeper, passionate zeal for the holiness that God calls his people to. And Exodus, the end of Exodus, wonderfully lays that out for us. The nature of being set apart, what that means, what that truly means to offer the Lord your very best your first fruits, 
God had to instruct his people in it very deliberately. And I believe the church in 2024 needs to be very deliberately instructed in a deeper appreciation of being set apart. So I'm really excited for Exodus. It's going to be awesome. We're going to look at some of those stories that we tend to relegate to the kids wing. You know, hey, it's important that we teach our second graders that God parted the Red Sea. But you don't need to be reminded about that as adults. Let's go through the same chapter in James for the 17th time. No, it's good to be reminded that, hey, yeah, God's sovereign over the ocean. Like, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. You realize God makes the sun stand still at one point in Exodus? That'll be fun. So I'm really excited for Exodus. I'm trusting, I'm believing that God has brought us here for a reason. I'm trusting and believing and praying that he will use it to sanctify his church, to sharpen his church. And let's see where it goes. So that is Exodus in a nutshell. Like I said, if you didn't grab the handout at the start, make sure you get one on the end, throw it in your Bible, have that study guide. But let's dive into this together. Let's get excited about this. And let's see what God is doing all the way back then and now today. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you are great. And more than that, you are greater. You're greater than we can even conceive of, than we have words for. Your greatness surpasses our capacity for language. Your holiness far exceeds anything we can even think of or compare it to. You are omnipotent. You are omniscient. You are omnipresent. You are perfectly holy. You are holy, holy, holy. It is our privilege, it is our joy, it is our delight to be able to know you, to be a part of your family, to be assembled as your church, to be called to be your bride. Lord, may we know these things, may we mean these things, may we approach them with the joy and the seriousness that you deserve. Teach us, God. Remind us of what you have done from the beginning. Remind us of what you are doing now so that we may approach this life with confidence. It says we are more than that in Christ. We are conquerors through Christ. God, use your word as only you can as a sword to cut away what needs to be cut away, to refine and prune your church. May this series be a sacrifice to you. May our submission to your word be an offering to you. May it start with me. May it start with the elders. Make Community Bible Church holier. Make us holier. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.